Welcome to Real Footnotes, the podcast where we take stories from the margins and put them on the front page. I'm Brian. And I'm Jeff. And this, if you can believe it, is episode four. If it's your first time listening, this podcast is basically two academic historians telling stories that we'd normally discuss over beers with our friends. Now, we're still having those beers, but microphones and audio software and editing and noise interruptions, all that's involved <laughs> yeah. now. Now, we've been overwhelmed by the response that we've had so far. We've gotten a lot of feedback, mostly positive, and we're always looking at ways to make the show better so join the conversation online and we'll give you all those details at the end of the show okay so if we're looking at a way to make the show better why don't you move away from honolulu there's not a goddamn quiet room on that island and if this doesn't so 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 it seems right and if it doesn't change soon i'm gonna have a totally new feelings about the movie pearl harbor anyway So um, I'd also uh, want to point out that I listened to Radiolab this week and they mentioned something about like it costing $100,000 to make a, a single episode. Oh my God. So that's like almost 100,000 times more to the dollar than we spend doing these. Mm-hmm. So, you know, manage your expectations. We're working on it. Yeah. Okay, moving on. I'm uh, very excited about this particular topic. So let's jump straight in. We're going to start with a question we put to our listeners and our friends on Facebook. And I also asked some random people on the street. And that question was, what was the greatest invention or discovery of the 20th century? And we got some great answers. If you're a parent, baby swings. I'm going to go with the tank, because the tank is what really turned the war in World War I. I would definitely say the pill, because it gave women control over their own reproduction. Now, I have no idea when baby swings were invented. I assume that the swing is an old technology, but its application to babies, I don't know. I just looked it up, and the Jolly Jumper was invented in 1910, which is pretty cool. I didn't know it was a 20th century invention. I kind of want an adult one. (laughs) We got lots of votes for the pill uh, on Facebook, including Brian's mom who voted for the pill. Maybe she she had wished she had taken it before she had Brian. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I think the pill's a great one because it has the potential to upend the oldest division of labor, the gender one. We're still a long way off from that, but the pill is definitely a good start. Another one was tanks. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, and of course it's militarily important. It had a big impact on the First World War and the Second World War. But I don't know how it improved a lot of humanity. It ended up killing a lot of people, and I don't see how it has much utility outside of the military. Well, on a related note, Andy from Portland said nuclear fission, which is also a good one, but it also had the potential and has killed people, right? But it shook up the world order, so maybe greatest is a moniker you could put on it. My only concern is that it's not the materials aren't widely used. We haven't seen the benefits of it distributed very widely, so I don't know. Yeah, another one was the radio from John in Spokane. And I have to exclude this one because that was developed in the 1890s. We also got the airplane from a recurring friend, Chris Phillips, and he wasn't alone. Brian's buddy Andy agreed. I believe it to be the aeroplane. (laughs) Todd from Delaware suggested the transistor, and I thought that was a pretty good one. It's definitely had a big impact, especially in terms of microchips, which has allowed, you know, cell phones, computers, etc. So yeah, it's definitely a very good candidate. And a lot of people said various medical discoveries, like Galen from Ottawa, who said antibiotics, and Estrella in DC, who said penicillin. Andy, however was a bit skeptical about our intentions. Is this the part where you're like, you're both wrong? The answer is, it's like the auto gyro. There isn't actually a correct answer because it's a totally bullshit question. There's no objective criteria by which we can actually judge greatest. I mean, there are some wrong answers for sure, like 
whatever the fuck the auto gyro is. Well, we could come up with some criteria, even if it's not totally objective. We could use something like human lives saved, but the answer would likely be medical technology, like vaccines or something. Well, you know what's surprising is the earliest vaccinations were uh, in the late 18th century. They're over 200 years old, not exactly a new technology. Anyway, what if we use the criteria human lives saved or enabled? In that case, atmospheric nitrogen fixation would have a strong claim for the greatest invention. In our last mini-sode, we described this episode as a literal foot note to Jeff's research on hydroelectric dams in the American South. We also said that the power from the Wilson Dam in Alabama was destined for factories that produced nitrates. That's right. It's a Jeff episode. And I'm going to try. Yay! Yay, finally. <laughs> so I'm going to try to convince our listeners that something that seems absolutely banal is actually fascinating if you look a little closer. Because those Alabama nitrates were made by unlocking the vast sea of nitrogen in our atmosphere and converting it into sweet, sweet ammonia. So why is it that the United States government was building a huge power dam to make ammonia? Isn't that what makes urine smell, well, like piss? Yeah, actually, that's basically right. It's a combination of ammonia and carbon dioxide that make urea, which gives urine its very distinctive smell. But ammonia is so much more than that, my friend. It is the key ingredient in man-made fertilizer. You mean human shit? <laughs> no. That is a kind of man-made <laughs> fertilizer, right? But no, I mean synthetic fertilizer. And more importantly, at least in the case for the Wilson Dam, ammonia can also be the key ingredient in gunpowder and explosives. Wait, wasn't the bomb that Timothy McVeigh used to blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City basically a van loaded with fertilizer? Yeah, along with some diesel fuel. It just seems ironic that this substance that helps human life by encouraging plants to grow also helps take lives through violence and war. It seems like a paradox. Well, today's story is going to be full of paradoxes because it focuses on Fritz Auber, a German chemist whose method of atmospheric nitrogen fixation continues to turn the air that we breathe into bread and war. You've likely never heard of Fritz Auber, but the Auber-Bosch process, named after Auber and the engineer that industrialized it, Karl Bosch, changed the world for better and worse. First, let me just comment, because I think, you know, we, I don't know if it's our, like, my, at least my French Canadian heritage or my Spanish wife, but I tend to drop the H off Haber. Yeah, me too. I think it's, it's not Hitler, it's Hitler, right? I mean, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's a good you know, point. Uh, so it's probably Haber, but just for our listeners, it's like a reflex. I can't help myself, so I'm going to keep dropping that H. And this episode, we're going to tell Auber's story which is filled with triumph and tragedy, and then we're gonna take a closer look at the complex legacies of his most famous scientific discovery. The fertilizers made by the Auber process exploded global food production, which in turn exploded the world's population. A lot of explosions going on here. <laughs> so in 1900, the world contained about a billion and a half people. It's 1.6 billion to be more exact. So it took humanity somewhere around 200,000 years, which is a much less precise figure, to reach that threshold of 1.6 billion. But in just the last century, Century, we've added 6 billion more. Population growth is exponential, but something else seriously had to change. Major medical advances were certainly part of that change, and some of the greatest inventions that our listeners suggested, like penicillin and antibiotics, played a huge role. Oh, absolutely. And there's also the proliferation of modern sanitation systems that close the sewers, deliver safe water, and treat waste. We here in the developed world tend to take those kind of things for granted, but they vastly improved human health. And there's the added benefit, which is that our cities don't literally smell like shit. Or urea. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but since we're talking nitrogen, what about food security? In many, although unfortunately not all places, 
We have food in unprecedented variety and abundance. Some scholars like Thomas Hager, who wrote an excellent book, The Alchemy of the Air, which we read for this podcast, claim that if humans use the best available organic farming practices and everyone ate as a vegetarian diet, which is less resource intensive, the earth could sustain about 4 billion people. Right now, we're closing in on seven and a half. So we're gonna find out how Fritz Auber enabled that astounding growth, but we'll also discuss how he improved explosives and oversaw Germany's chemical weapon program during the very gassy First World War. Fritz Auber is a very divisive historical figure. He won the Nobel Prize and was simultaneously called a war criminal. But if I'm being honest, I think he's mostly a tragic figure. His life leaves me feeling somewhat ambivalent, on the one hand, he's a giant of chemistry, but on the other hand, he was kind of a piece of shit. In the rest of the episode, we're going to discuss Auber's life and legacy, explain the basic details of nitrogen fixation, and how it changed the world. Then we'll discuss his work with chemical weapons, his contradictory legacy, and the unintended consequences of his major discovery. As we tell his story, ask yourself if any piece of technology is inherently good or evil, because we'll have more to say about that later on. All of that, after our theme song. Let's start with Fritz Auber's childhood. He was born in 1868 into an affluent Jewish family. His father was a successful chemical merchant in Breslau, a sizable city in eastern Prussia. Sadly, his mother died from complications three weeks after his birth. As a baby, he was passed around from aunt to aunt until his father remarried when he was six. So not so great of a childhood. His relationship with his father would always be strained, but by all accounts, he was close to his stepmother and his three half-sisters. Also, as you might imagine, growing up Jewish in Germany was, well, complicated. Although, interestingly, Germany wasn't actually necessarily the worst place to be Jewish at the time. In the decades before the Nazis, Germany actually offered a modest degree of social mobility for talented members of the Jewish community. It was far from egalitarian, of course, but then again, there weren't that many places that were. There was actually, you know, it makes me just think that there was no inevitable outcome specific to German anti-Semitism. It's a good reminder that history is contingent and not determinative. The Auber family was the model of German assimilation. Young Fritz attended primary and high school with Catholics and Protestants, and although his family loosely observed Jewish traditions, Fritz always considered himself German, far more than Jewish. Eventually, he even converted to the Lutheran Church. He likely converted to improve his chances of social mobility, but who knows. Auber was totally assimilated, but nonetheless, his Jewish heritage carried a social cost. Auber passed his high school exams in 1886 and had some scientific talent. His father wanted him to work as an apprentice in his chemical dye company, but Auber was determined to go to university. He was admitted to chemistry programs in Berlin and Heidelberg, eventually earning a doctorate in chemistry from the Friedrich Wilhelm University in 1891 at the ripe age of 23. That's goddamn embarrassing for us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 23. That's Yeah, that's insane. Anyway, so after graduating, Auber tried to work for his father in Breslau, but they just didn't work well together. Fritz quit his job, did a semester of technical study in Zurich, and then he rejoined the company, but he quit once again. This experience convinced Fritz that he belonged in the academy, so he began looking for university positions. He was a professor's assistant at the University of Jena for a couple of years and then found a more permanent position at the University of Karlsruhe in 1894. 
Over the next few years, he made a series of small but meaningful contributions to the research of dyes and textiles, and then began working in thermodynamics and electrochemistry. His career was going pretty well, and so was his social life. In 1889, he met a remarkable young woman from Breslau named Clara Immerwar. Clara was a promising young chemist and the first woman in Germany to receive a PhD in chemistry. She received it from the University of Breslau in 1900. What a badass woman. That, like, that's, that's, that's incredible. Good for her. Right. I mean, pretty amazing. So, like Fritz, she was also a, a convert from Judaism to Christianity. She was a pacifist and a passionate women's rights activist. All in all, pretty incredible start to a promising young life. But then in 1901, Clara married Fritz Auber. Clara surmounted social barriers in education, but she lived in a time and place with much narrower ideas about gender roles. She was unable to overcome the expectations of marriage and motherhood, which confined her to her home instead of her laboratory. She was unhappy and felt trapped by her husband. In 1909, Clara expressed these frustrations in a letter to a friend. The lift I got from marriage was very brief, and the main reasons for that was Fritz's oppressive way of putting himself first in a home and marriage, so that a less ruthlessly self-assertive personality was simply destroyed. Fritz always needed to be the center of attention. He was ambitious and hardworking, but hardworking to the point that he neglected his wife and children. Fitz is so scattered. If I didn't bring him to his son once in a while, he wouldn't know that he was a father. Just as Clara's life was taking a turn for the worse, her husband's career began to take off. In 1905, he turned his considerable talent and frenetic energy to the problem of atmospheric nitrogen fixation. So we've actually used that phrase repeatedly already, nitrogen fixation, and it's about time that we take a short diversion to sketch out the basic idea. Not everyone remembers high school chemistry, so let's keep it simple, Jeff. Sure. All right. Nitrogen is an element, and in its gaseous state, it makes up about 78% of our atmosphere. The gas is called N2 because it's two nitrogen atoms bound very, very tightly together. So tightly, in fact, that... It's basically an inert gas. Meaning that it doesn't interact with other chemicals, right? Yeah, exactly. So for most of human history, we've been engulfed in a nearly endless sea of nitrogen, but haven't been able to use it. And that's because it takes a ton of energy under exactly the right conditions to break those N2 molecules apart. Once those bonds are broken, the single nitrogen atoms are free to combine with other elements and form new compounds. And this process of breaking apart atmospheric nitrogen and thereby making it usable is called fixation. Fixation happens naturally in a couple of ways. First, and pretty amazingly, lightning strikes contain enough energy to break the N2 bonds apart and fix nitrogen. But most nitrogen is naturally fixed by a kind of bacteria that live on the uh, roots of legumes mostly. These bacteria produce an enzyme that combines atmospheric nitrogen with hydrogen and produces ammonia, whose chemical formula is NH3. When these plants die, they release their ammonia into the soil, which nourishes other plants. One of the main reasons that nitrogen is so important is because it's an essential ingredient in chlorophyll. Chlorophyll? More like borophyll! Okay, Billy. Chlorophyll allows plants to take energy from sunlight and turns carbon dioxide into oxygen. That's photosynthesis. Without photosynthesis, we all die. Yeah, basically everything dies. Fertilizers supplement natural fixation by increasing the nitrogen content of the soil, often using manure, which is just plant nitrogen cycled through the digestive system of an animal. And farmers, to conserve and replenish their soil's nitrogen content, have traditionally used a system of careful crop rotation. For example, a farmer might divide his field into three sections. In one, he plants a nitrogen-fixing legume. In another, a nitrogen-hungry grain. And finally, he leaves one fallow to regenerate. 
Then during the next growing season, he rotates them. Since at least ancient Egypt, farmers have experimented with different methods to preserve or revitalize the quality of their soils. Through slow and informal experimentation, they managed to squeeze productivity out of the land. But there are limits. Only so much land can be put under cultivation. It's finite. But the demand for food grows exponentially with population. This problem is called the Malthusian trap. We're not going to get too bogged down with Thomas Malthus, except to say that he was a clergyman and an economist and a major influence on the idea of Charles Darwin. Malthus's most famous essay is called On the Principle of Population, and it was written in 1798. In that essay, Malthus predicted that population growth would eventually outstrip food supply, and that would force the population to quote-unquote correct itself, which is basically a nicer way to say malnutrition, even mass starvation, which then would almost certainly be accompanied by mass uprisings over resources and wars. Let me put this another way. Imagine a small herd of 100 cattle are penned into a large field. At first, there's plenty of food, like grass, to go around because the population is small and the area quite large. But what if the herd doubled in size to 200 cattle? The amount of food available remains the same, but there are twice as many mouths to feed. And what if it doubled again and then again and so on? Unchecked population growth will ultimately surpass the food available in the field, leading to malnutrition and starvation. Uh, eventually a delicate equilibrium is reached, and that's what ecologists call carrying capacity. Okay, we need to bring this back to Auber, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Urea. It's what makes your pee stink, unless you ate asparagus. Okay, welcome back. Now it sounds ridiculous, but atmospheric nitrogen fixation was a huge deal, especially for Germany. Remember that Fritz Auber wasn't actually born in Germany, he was born in Prussia. That's because Germany didn't exist in 1868. The German states only unified in 1871. And that meant that Germany missed the vast majority of the European scramble for overseas colonies, as well as many of the post-colonial trade arrangements to import those foreign resources. This included sources of nitrogen from places like Western South America and India, which the Europeans relied on to fertilize their crops and make their explosives. By the end of the century, Germany emerged as an industrial powerhouse. Among many other things, it needed reliable sources of nitrogen to fuel its transition into a major world power, but it had, and still has, no domestic sources. It did, however, have a major asset, the world's leading chemical industry and research facilities. If Germany could take nitrogen from the air and turn it into ammonia, the basic ingredient for fertilizers and explosives, it would be a game changer. Now we should point out that a lot of human suffering accompanied the movement of nitrogen resources around the globe, but it certainly wasn't humanitarian concerns that compelled the search for alternatives. Most of the powers were worried that these natural resources could be monopolized by a competitor and it would give that competitor a decisive advantage in trade and war. That's the context in which Arbor joined the search to find a method to fix atmospheric nitrogen, and he joined a somewhat crowded field. Around the turn of the century, there were already two methods to fix nitrogen from the air, the cyanamide process and the arc method. The cyanamide process was developed in the 1890s by two German chemists. They combined atmospheric nitrogen with calcium carbide in extremely high temperatures, around 1000 degrees Celsius, to produce a solid mixture called calcium cyanamide, also known as nitrolime. With some additional processing, this compound could be converted into ammonia. The cyanamide process dominated the early synthetic fertilizer market, but it was very energy intensive, inefficient, 
and very expensive. So one of the nitrate plants at Muscle Shoals, the footnote for this show, was actually a cyanamide plant. That's why they needed a dedicated hydroelectric dam. The other pre-auber fixation process is called the ARC method, and it was developed by a Norwegian scientist named Christian Birkeland in 1903. Basically, it tried to replicate the effect of lightning using an electrical arc and powerful magnets to break apart the N2 molecules. The reaction would reach something like 3000 degrees Celsius. So like the cyanamide process, it just takes tons of energy. Remember that they're trying to replicate lightning. So the search for a more viable method continued. In 1902, Wilhelm Ostwald, a giant of German science and one of the founders of physical chemistry, figured out how to convert ammonia to nitric acid. This opened up another avenue of research and he started to try to synthesize ammonia from the air. He got so close to figuring it out. Ostwald knew that it would require a balance of heat, pressure, and the right catalyst. So he crafted a little test machine, built up some pressure using a bicycle pump, added a bit of iron wire to act as a catalyst, and then blew hot into all over it. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> that was a full out attempt at phrasing right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're just trying to draw it out of me. <laughs> oh, draw it out of you. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so Oswald's uh, little experiment worked. Well, sort of. Under the right conditions, the experiment produced trace amounts of ammonia. So Oswald took his little test machine to Germany's largest chemical company, BASF, which still exists today, to demonstrate his process and see if it could be scaled up for industrial production. BASF asked one of their young engineers, a man named Carl Bosch, to verify Oswald's results. Bosch discovered that the ammonia that Oswald thought he was producing from the air actually came from contaminants in the equipment. This absolutely humiliated Oswald, and he quietly withdrew from the fixation race. He almost had it solved. Most of the ingredients were there, but it was Fritz Auber who put them all together. In 1905, Auber picked up where Oswald had left off experimenting with temperature, pressure, and various catalysts. And in 1908, he struck a deal with BASF to do research on the ARC method and the idea of synthesizing ammonia from the air. The agreement said that BASF would receive any new patents generated from the research, and Auber would receive all of the expensive lab equipment he needed, as well as 10% of any future revenue generated. And that turned out to be a pretty amazing deal for both parties. In his fancy new lab, Auber cranked up the pressure to almost 200 atmospheres, which is 200 times the air pressure at sea level. Now this would crush a modern submarine. Brian, Brian, quick, turn that off before we get sued. Although, I guess we could use the vanilla ice defense. Ding, 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 diggy, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. That's the way theirs goes. Ours goes ding, 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 diggy, ding, ding. Ding, 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 diggy, ding, ding. That little bitty change. It's not the same. Auber refined every aspect of the experiment for efficiency and began to experiment with all different kinds of catalysts. After a year of experimentation, Auber had a major breakthrough. He put an extremely rare element called osmium into his machine to use as a catalyst, and then he ran the experiment. And it began to produce ammonia. No one knew why osmium worked. In fact, no one even really knew what osmium was at the time. It's turns out it's a metal in the platinum family, but it was making ammonia and making it in an amount that looked like it could be scaled up for commercial production. BASF was obviously quite enthusiastic about this. Yeah, I bet. And so they got Bosch to verify the results and then immediately 
bought up almost all of the known osmium in the world. Which who knows how much, Not there wasn't very much of it, so eventually BASF found a more suitable and plentiful catalyst, which was made, if you're curious, by adding aluminum oxide and calcium to lead. But that was actually just the first of many serious challenges that Carl Bosch, who was now in charge of the project, had to face to produce ammonia on an industrial scale. There's a reason why it's formally called the Auber-Bosch process, but as an aside, we'll probably end up using Auber process and Auber-Bosch process basically interchangeably. The biggest challenge was the pressure, so Bosch worked with Krupps, the best German cannon maker, to build two eight-foot-long steel ovens that were about an inch thick but they burst within three days of operation. So it turns out that hydrogen gas had pressed into the metal, making it crack, but Bosch devised an ingenious system of small holes to release excess hydrogen and got the project back on track. In 1911, BASF had a working prototype, and by 1913, Bosch had constructed a massive industrial system that literally produced tons of ammonia every hour. And Fritz Auber? Well, he became rich and famous. He solved one of the most urgent scientific questions of the day, especially for Germany, and his method fixed far more nitrogen with far less energy than earlier attempts. Now that this problem was solved, Auber simply moved on. He was made the director of the new Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry in Berlin. So Fritz Auber received the professional esteem and social status that he so desired. But his contributions to German chemistry didn't end with nitrogen fixation. Not by a long shot. The Auber-Bosch process was an enormous asset for Germany when the First World War broke out in 1914. The German war machine consumed all the ammonia that BASF could produce and much more. The first Auber-Bosch plant located in a town called Apau was running at full capacity and the construction of a second, much larger plant was completed in a town called Leuna in 1917. Now as Brian said, these nitrate factories were crucial to the German war effort. In fact, some historians have suggested that the war may have ended up to two years earlier without the Auber-Bosch process. But we'll never actually know because as we've often said, history is contingent. In any case, Fritz Auber had very little involvement with any of this. It was all in Karl Bosch's hands. Auber's attention was elsewhere. In the design and production of chemical weapons. In addition to being a scientific icon and basically a negligent husband and father, Auber was an uber-German patriot, totally devoted to Germany's victory in the First World War. When the war broke out, Auber turned the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute into an advanced weapons research facility, and they were making something new and horrifying, weaponized gas. Of course, the idea of chemical weapons wasn't new. The ancient Assyrians had combustible arrowheads and the Byzantines had Greek fire, an incendiary weapon. In fact, a treaty in 1899 specifically prohibited projectiles containing, quote, asphyxiating or deleterious gases. France was the first nation to violate the treaty early on in the war. Thanks, France. When they lobbed tear gas into the German trenches. I fart in your general direction! But seriously, military-grade tear gas can be brutal and can cause intense vomiting and like your eyes start to water and whatnot. <laughs> Hence the name tear gas. Yeah. yeah, of course your eyes start to water. But the point here is that it's not actually lethal. It can't kill you. Yeah, and no one anticipated the arms race that followed. Auber was made a captain in the German army and led the chemistry program for the German Ministry of War. He began working on a gas designed to kill enemy soldiers, cause panic and confusion, destroy the Allies' morale, and presumably end in German victories. The result? Chlorine gas. Ghostly green in color, soldiers described chlorine gas as smelling of pineapple and pepper. It tasted metallic and stung the back of the throat and chest. Chlorine gas works by reacting with the water in your lungs and forming hydrochloric acid, 
basically burning you from the inside out. In high concentrations, it's lethal, but its effects are horrifying at any concentration. Aubra waited for months to deploy his secret weapon, because apparently not everyone in the German chain of command was convinced or comfortable with its use. But Aubra got his chance on April 22, 1915, near the Flemish town of Ypres in Belgium. At 5 p.m., Fritz Aubra's gas troops simultaneously opened five and a half thousand canisters of chlorine gas into a favorable wind that had shifted towards the enemy. Then they all ran like hell in the other direction. A wall of pale green gas four miles long drifted toward the unsuspecting French line. When it hit, the French were in total disarray. A huge hole opened in the Allied lines, but the Germans advanced slowly, fearful of any lingering gas. Canadian soldiers on the edges of the French lines poured flanking fire into the advancing Germans and halted the attack, which allowed the Allies time to reform the general line. Êtes-vous d'accord, Hosers? Why? You're just determined to shoehorn something oh, about God. Canada in there, eh? <laughs> yep. <laughs> anyway, uh, Ypres was just the first volley in an arms race. From that point on, where both sides developed deadlier gases and better defenses. For example, when gas masks were introduced to prevent chlorine poisoning, both sides turned to mustard gas, a corrosive blistering agent. And then so on and so forth. It escalated. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, who won a Nobel Peace Prize recently for their work in Syria, claimed that during the First World War, chemical weapons killed over 90,000 soldiers and injured more than a million. But it was never a decisive weapon. However, Fritz Aubert justified the use of gas because he thought it would be decisive. And he claimed that the war would end sooner and countless lives would be saved. Which is, of course, the exact same argument that President Truman would later make to justify the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War. Anyways, for a brief time after the military attack at Ypres, Aubrey was celebrated as a military hero, a title that he, of course, relished in. He returned to Berlin to receive honors and new orders, sending him to the Eastern Front to, of course gas the Russians. I mean, not of course, but yeah, to gas the Russians for sure. That was the plan. But the time off also gave him a chance to throw a party at his home. Ever the social climber, Fritz Aubrey loved to invite prominent members of the upper echelons of German society into his house. On May 2nd, 1915, Aubrey threw one of these parties. My name is Fritz and welcome to my party. But after all the guests had left and Fritz had taken a sleeping pill, his wife Clara wrote several letters and then walked into the garden with her husband's service revolver and fired two shots. One to test the gun, and the second into her own heart. She bled to death in her 12-year-old son's arms while her husband still slept. As we mentioned, Claire was a pacifist and was clearly uncomfortable with her husband's central role in gas warfare. She saw it as a perversion of something she loved chemistry. But her suicide is more complicated than a simple act of moral outrage. She was clearly disappointed in her life and she likely suffered from depression which ran in her family. There are also tantalizing hints that Fritz was having an affair but no one knows for sure. In any case, Clara's death has taken on a life of its own. She's become a kind of martyr, the principled woman who chose death rather than the shame of her husband's wartime activities. But the truth is that her promising life was actually cut short something like 15 years earlier by social norms and expectations. And we should celebrate her significant accomplishments, not her tragic end. After Clara's death, Fritz left for the Eastern Front. He then remarried two years later. By the way, to the same woman he was rumored to have had that affair with. Then he went on to win the Nobel Prize for his work on nitrogen fixation in 1919, but not everyone celebrated. 
Two French winners refused to accept the awards and protests, and an American winner refused to attend any ceremony with Aubrey present. Scientific genius and German patriot were no longer the only terms widely used to describe Fritz Aubrey. After his work on chemical weapons, many saw him as a war criminal. More on that in a moment. But ever the German patriot, Aubrey spent much of the interwar period trying to develop a method to aggregate trace amounts of gold found in the oceans in order to help Germany repay its massive war debt. Now, I know that sounds a bit crazy, and it's based on a false assumption that particulate gold was evenly distributed across the oceans. In any case, he never collected any significant amount of gold and therefore didn't help Germany pay down any of that debt. With the rise of Hitler and the Nazis, Aubrey had to rethink his place in German society. He had worked hard to become accepted as unquestionably German. At first, he just kept his head down and relied on his distinguished military service and unambiguous patriotism to protect him against growing anti-Semitism. But eventually, the Nazis purged the civil service of its Jewish members. Aubrey was actually exempted because of his military past. Unfortunately, many of his colleagues at the Institute weren't so lucky. And in a rare act of moral courage, he resigned in solidarity. Now, it didn't stop there because the Nazis were... Well, they were fucking Nazis. And Aubrey joined a growing exodus of German-Jewish scientists, which included bona fide geniuses like Albert Einstein. Aubrey ended up at Cambridge University in the UK in 1933, but after only a few months, Heim Weissmann, a fellow chemist, a prominent Zionist, and later, the first president of Israel, lured Aubrey away to a job at a new Hebrew research institute in Palestine. But Aubrey's health was deteriorating, and en route to Palestine, in Basel, Switzerland, he suffered a massive heart attack and died on January 29th, 1934. Because of the Nazis, Aubrey appeared to tentatively embrace his Jewish heritage near the end of his life. He died feeling abandoned by the country to which he was so devoted. And so ends the life and story of Fritz Aubrey. But let's take a moment and consider his legacy, because like we said at the beginning, it's ambivalent. His work on nitrogen fixation continues to feed the world. Remember, some scholars think that the Earth can naturally sustain about 4 billion people, and if you buy that, then three and a half billion people are alive because of his discovery. Well, let's not put the heart before the course. His discovery enabled the world's population to grow and helped sustain it, but it didn't necessarily cause it to grow. Okay, fair enough. Fritz Auber's legacy is as complicated and contradictory as the man himself. He helped us escape the Malthusian trap, but atmospheric nitrogen fixation has many unintended consequences of its own. Aubrey's work on chemical weapons led many to label him a war criminal, but even there, I think his legacy and the weapons he devised are more complicated than they appear. In place of an interview, Jeff and I are going to discuss the use and morality of chemical warfare, as well as the unintended consequences of Aubrey's nitrogen. But first, another word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by my dog Gordy's theme song, Sing Along. But where it Good boy. Before the break, we teased a discussion about the values that we attribute to or embed in technology. So let's start with a somewhat provocative idea. That the moral basis for prohibiting chemical weapons is questionable. Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, bear with me. I'll bear with you. Okay, okay, okay. 
So let's be clear up front. I mean, that's a good point. I'm not saying that chemical weapons are good. Just that our collective decision to specifically ban them isn't as cut and dry as it may seem. It's obviously more complicated than chemicals are evil, but metal projectiles fired at high velocity are totally fine. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate and question why we have a prohibition on some weapons, but not on others. And if those distinctions make any sense. Okay, but we need to be careful in light of the Assad regime's frequent use of chemical weapons in Syria. I mean, this isn't just an abstract problem. It has horrific, horrific consequences on people's lives. Agreed. I understand we need to tread carefully. And I actually had a long discussion with my wife the other day about this exact topic. And she basically said, why do you even want to argue about this? Even if chemical weapons are morally equivalent to bullets, it's still a good thing that they are banned, even if the bullets aren't. You're just going to look like an asshole. And, as usual, she is abs no, <laughs> she's absolutely right. But I love arguing just for the sake of it. So with that in mind, I'm about to look like an asshole. Okay, before we get into that, let's lay out how Fritz Auber saw chemical weapons. In an interview with the New York Times in 1926, Auber told a journalist that, quote, very few lives were lost through gas, although its effect on morale was considerable, but that was only because it was a new sensation, and the mystery of death seemed lurking everywhere. He went on to say, quote, its advent in the form of a silent, invisible gas was new, and therefore had a psychological effect, and Germany incurred the world's hate. Essentially, Auber had concluded that chemical weapons use was somewhat self-defeating. But on the other hand, Auber also pulled the Hiroshima-Nagasaki defense. Well, then he would have created it, right? <laughs> yeah, ostensibly. <laughs> the Hiroshima-Nagasaki, he couldn't have pulled it. It didn't exist yet. Yeah, so he did a precursor of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki defense saying that chemical weapons actually saved lives by shortening the conflict, which of course it didn't. So Albert wasn't alone in his defense of chemical weapons. JBS Haldane, a British scientist and public intellectual who worked on the UK's chemical weapons program during the First World War, wrote an essay in 1925 that was unambiguously titled A Defense of Chemical Weapons. He was responding to the Geneva Convention that proposed a ban on chemical warfare. Haldane wrote, quote, Weapons can all, I think, be abused. But none is perhaps always evil, and many, like mustard gas, when we have gotten over our first not very rational objection to them, turn out to be on the whole good. If it is right for me to fight my enemy with a sword, it is right for me to fight him with mustard gas. If one is wrong, so is the other. Okay, that last bit is fair, but saying that mustard gas is, quote, on the whole good, what the fuck? I do not agree with that at all. Yeah, okay, we, okay. but Haldane actually argues that chemical warfare had the potential to make war more humane, because the gases could be designed to incapacitate rather than kill the enemy. It's so like knockout gas or something like that? Well, or who knows what, right? If you could come up with a, if they had advanced the research on them, maybe you could come up with a design that would incapacitate soldiers for a while rather than killing or permanently injuring them, right? That was the idea. Okay. And he concluded that the ban isn't really about chemical weapons at all. It's about an irrational fear of science and the new weapons it can produce. Clearly, neither Auber nor Haldane saw chemical weapons as inherently evil. But they both had a clear stake in the argument. So at this point, Jeff and I are going to respond to four simple questions and try to look at them from opposite sides. What are chemical weapons? How do they work? How often have they been used? And finally, are they inherently evil? Okay, I think I got those. Uh, so let's start with what is a chemical weapon? Okay, let's start with the basic definition. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which we mentioned earlier, they say that, quote, the term chemical weapon may be applied to any toxic chemical or its precursor that can cause death, 
injury, temporary incapacitation, or sensory irritation through its chemical action. Munitions or other delivery devices designed to deliver chemical weapons, whether filled or unfilled, are also considered chemical weapons. Okay, so a lot of my objections actually stem from this definitional question, because what is considered a chemical weapon seems to change depending on who's using it. For example, the United States routinely used napalm in both Japan and Korea. They used it in Japan? Yeah. I think they used it in Korea too, but also definitely Vietnam. And then for obvious reasons, they refused to allow the UN to classify its use against civilian populations as a war crime until 1980. And then they didn't join the treaty to prohibit its military use until Obama's first day in office, so 2009. I know people are inevitably going to say that napalm is technically an incendiary weapon, not a chemical one, but that's a pretty narrow distinction. Napalm is essentially gelled gasoline made by the Dow Chemical Company. So if we were being honest and called incendiary weapons what they actually are, a type of chemical weapon, then we'd have to include things like the firebombing of Tokyo in World War II as a chemical attack, and that killed 100,000 people, more than all the chemical deaths in World War I. So I think we often pick the definition that suits our military needs and not our moral claims. So you're arguing that the definition of chemical weapons is a social construct? Well, so if you're looking at napalm from the point of view of the US, it wasn't a chemical weapon. But if you're looking at it from the Vietnamese who are being burnt alive, Perhaps it is. So I'm obviously picking on the U.S. a bit because I live here and I pay taxes and I work with the army and I have high, almost certainly unreasonable expectations about how the U.S. should behave in war. But we could choose other examples like the white phosphorus that Iraq used against the Kurds in the 80s and more recently by Israel in Lebanon and uh, Gaza. And the Saudis are using it in Yemen. Oh, are they really? Yeah. So, huh. But, okay, just so our listeners know, white phosphorus is a self-igniting incendiary weapon that burns at incredibly high temperatures, produces blindingly bright light, and can also be highly lethal. But the majority of the time that it's used, it's used to provide smoke screens for troops who are trying to avoid being shot. Right. Well, but of course they'd say that. They're not going to admit that they're targeting civilians if it's a war crime. I don't know enough about the particular circumstances in these cases to say for sure, but deploying a self igniting chemical firestorm and then saying it's for troop movement seems a little suspicious. So the other point I want to make is that how do you classify something like Agent Orange? Because it's nominally a defoliant and the US dumps something like 20 million gallons of it or similar stuff on Vietnam. And even though it's not explicitly a weapon, it had horrible intergenerational even health impacts on the Vietnamese people. Something like 1 million Vietnamese have disabilities and birth defects and other health problems that are attributable to Agent Orange. I mean, and we're not even talking about the ecological cost, right? Which are huge as well. There is no question in my mind that Agent Orange is super fucked up. It absolutely is. and But arguably, if it's producing things like cancer or health, uh, long-term intergenerational health problems, then it is. It's causing physical damage to people. So Right, but that's you're making my point for me, right? I mean, it, it isn't. That's kind of the point. It, was, it wasn't classified as one. And so what matters, what's in and out is really meaningful, right? But aren't you playing the same game by conveniently picking what helps your argument? I mean, you're totally cherry picking here. Yeah, okay, touche, maybe. I mean, by picking this example. But again, it makes that point that what we consider in and what we consider out is meaningful because that informs what we decide to prohibit and what we don't. Okay. Now, the definition of what constitutes a chemical weapon comes across as a bit subjective. I, I, I'll give you that point. But it's also dependent on the views of those who wish to use them. So while there have been attempts to impose international standards as to what constitutes a chemical weapon, when major players like the United States pick and choose what counts, it undermines anti-proliferation efforts. 
Okay, so now let's move on to the second question. How do they work? I'm not going to get super technical here, because remember my definition, chemical weapons are designed to kill, maim, or incapacitate opponents. Some aren't lethal, like tear gas or pepper spray, but most are, and all of them are extremely painful. However, the most notorious chemical weapons, like those that Auber helped design, are intended to cause death. For example, chlorine gas damages the ears and eyes and cause death by asphyxiation. Remember, it creates hydrochloric acid in your lungs. Just brutal. Now, mustard gas causes blistering on the outside of the body and internal organs, especially the lungs. Those who happen to survive a mustard gas attack are then plagued by serious respiratory and other health issues for the rest of their lives. For example, my great-grandfather was gassed during the First World War, and while he survived the attack, he died a few years later, leaving his young family behind at the start of the Great Depression. His lungs had been compromised by the gas. Now, the main problem for me with chemical weapons is that they're indiscriminate in dealing death. Think of those photos posted just after Assad's most recent chemical weapon attack. Those killed are just as likely to be children as they are soldiers. And during World War I, chemical weapons regularly blew back on those who deployed it, underscoring the indiscriminate nature of this form of weaponry. It's fucking wrong. Right, okay, so I don't think there's any question that the deaths from chemical attacks can be pretty horrifying. I mean, I saw those photos too, but I think you might be kind of implicitly underselling what war looks like without them. Getting torn to pieces by shrapnel or dying from an infection left by a bayonet is no picnic, or so I imagine. In terms of how effective chemical weapons are, well, we said they weren't decisive in the First World War. There was something like 90,000 deaths out of 16 million, so that's roughly one and a half, one half of 1%. And it's curious that after the war, everyone seems so fixated on this tiny segment of casualties. Uh, even in Syria, chemical warfare has killed about 1,100 people. That's the best number I could find. And I don't want to minimize those deaths, but how many have died in the overall conflict? I mean, you say, so how many? I think it's like half a million. So half a million. So we said 1,100. So what is that? That's about a, less than a quarter of a percent. So the U.S. shoots Tomahawk missiles at empty air bases when we're outraged by a thousand chemical deaths. But when half a million are killed conventionally, it's just business as usual. It seems like we're concerned with the margins and not the problem itself. Oh, and by the way, we mostly don't even enforce the prohibition. Remember Obama's bright red line? Truthfully, I'm a little bit confused about why Assad even chooses to use them. Yeah, that's a good point. What's the value? They're, they're inefficient, they're not decisive, and it just pisses everybody off. That seems like a poor strategy. The other point that you raised is that chemical weapons are indiscriminate, which I guess is true, especially of those canisters that Auber would have used. But that's a technological problem, and I think they could probably be made more discriminate if we put our minds to it. But are they any more indiscriminate than other forms of warfare? I don't think the firebombing of Dresden was particularly discriminate. It killed 25,000 people in two days. Isn't total war kind of indiscriminate by nature? Wait, you just said incendiary devices should be called chemical weapons. So by your own definition, Dresden was an indiscriminate chemical warfare. Oh, okay, okay. Bad example. But take any other major conventional bombing raid. They may call it strategic bombing, but when your target list is literally everything, it's a little bit indiscriminate. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Like at the end of the war, of World War II, only like 2% of Munich was left standing. So Really? Yeah. Basically, a church was left standing. But anyways, total war by its very nature is indiscriminate. But I think chemical weapons are a kind of special class because of their psychological effects. 
The kinds of deaths that they deal are particularly brutal, and there's no escape when they're deployed. At least with a conventional bomb, I might find some shelter, or uh, if it's a bullet, I can hide behind something, or even wear a bulletproof vest or a bulletproof helmet. But if someone deploys a chemical weapon in my building, I'm fucked, and so is everyone else who doesn't have a gas mask on hand, which is basically no one. Right, unlikely. (laughs) And there's something particularly terrifying about that. Okay, let's move on to our third question. Let me give you some examples of how chemical weapons have actually been used since they were banned. I'm going to break this down into two particularly horrifying categories. States that have used them against their own people and terrorists who have used them just to be dicks. Wow, okay. (laughs) I mean, I think they have objectives other than being dicks, you know. I know we don't have to be fair to terrorists, but, you know, I mean... Okay, so even though chemical weapons have killed relatively few people, their deadly potential is magnified when you have a government that doesn't give a shit about its own people. For example, Germany used gas during the Holocaust to kill millions of its own people and those of its neighboring countries. Iraq used gas... Uh, against the Kurds in 1988 and killed 5,000 civilians in a single afternoon. And Syria recently used gas during its civil war, which has killed about 1,100 civilians, as you pointed out earlier. Now let's consider what happens when chemical weapons are used in acts of terrorism. And there's two good examples. First, in 1995, a group of terrorists deployed sarin nerve gas in the Tokyo subway system, which killed 12 and injured thousands. But a more recent example occurred in August 2015 when the Islamic State used mustard gas against Kurdish fighters defending the Kurdish capital, Erbil. This attack wounded 35 Kurdish Peshmerga, or their military, but no one actually died. Now, chemical ISIS. Think about that. Like, they've done a lot of damage with just, like, an AK-47 going into a public area. All right. Okay. No, no, but you, you... chemically bomb a concert and tons of people will die. So I am going to somewhat sidestep this question because of course all of that shit is horrible and I don't really want to be equivocal about that. But I do want to point out that you're only talking about a tiny fraction of the times when those same chemical weapons are used. You're almost totally ignoring the routine civilian and non-lethal uses. You mentioned military-grade tear gas. But what about tear gas used for crowd control? That's a chemical weapon. It certainly sucks to get tear gassed, but it's certainly at the same time better than getting shot or trampled to death. And more importantly, what about pesticides? After most chemical weapons were banned for military use at the Geneva Convention in 1925, the chemical industry just shifted its marketing and the very same chemical weapons became tools to kill bugs and weeds instead of people. So Zyklon B, which was incidentally designed at Fritz Auber's Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, was designed as a pesticide before it was ever used in Nazi gas chambers, and it's still in commercial production today under various names. A recent one was called Cyclone B, if you can believe that. Oh my god, that is... Terrible Cyclone B, I mean. Of course, Jewish groups lost their minds rightly, and <laughs> they, the name got changed pretty quick. That, that's a stupid move. So my point, though, is that chemical weapons are still used every day just to kill parts of nature that we find obnoxious. That's a really interesting point. So, and, you know, I'm going to go a little bit off our notes here because I've been thinking about something you mentioned, and I think you were on to something when you were talking about how chemical weapons just seem so indiscriminate. Okay. I think a big reason that chemical weapons provoke such fear is because they contaminate the air and breathing is a reflex, right? So... In more traditional combat, you at least have a fighting chance, sort of as you mentioned about bulletproof vests and shelter. Gas, though, seems somehow fundamentally unfair. And I think that's part of something bigger, a kind of 
depersonalization of war. I remember reading a post-war interview with Fritz Haber where he predicted that airplanes would rain down far more death than any chemical weapon. And he was totally right. Absolutely, yeah. We mentioned the firebombings of Tokyo and Dresden, which would have been war crimes if the Allies had lost the Second World War. That's, you know, airplanes rain death from above. It's death from above. And in the 1960s, people protested the brutal American bombing campaign in North Vietnam. Called Operation Rolling Thunder. Well, yeah, and they protested it because it was totally indiscriminate. And now we have drones, and I don't think we've really had a good public conversation about what drones actually mean. I mean, talk about depersonalized warfare. It's death from a storage container somewhere outside Las Vegas. Doesn't that just feel intuitively unfair like chemical weapons? And not to get too soapboxy, but literally just this past week, the White House announced that it's rolling back the rules on who can be targeted by drones, expanding where the areas where drones can be used, and saying that drone strikes could be ordered and reviewed further on down the chain of command. And as I'm saying this, I can already hear people arguing, you know, I'm sort of thinking as I go here, that drone strikes are actually highly discriminant in who they target, and they don't put service members' lives at risk. But I mean, kind of holy fuck. You can't actually be bothered to show up for the wars. You also can't be bothered to actually declare. How is any of that moral? I mean, it, it's not. And your point here actually got me thinking a lot about Vietnam and, and Operation Rolling Thunder about how like every village that they would have destroyed meant that an entire village of survivors would join. The Viet Cong, right? I mean, it's, it's you're just radicalizing the people. And I mean, I think drones are contributing to that, right? Absolutely. It's absolutely contributed to the radicalization of Pakistan. I mean, if you're a Pakistani who lives in the tribal areas to the north and you have to constantly worry about death raining down from the sky, then that's definitely unfair it like it just seems fundamentally wrong right and there's it seems to me that like that buzzing of the drones and that constant surveillance you know is such an intrusive part of people's lives now that i just can't imagine they look at us favorably but anyway so maybe drones should be banned alongside chemical weapons or are they just totally cool because only our side whatever that means in the context of endless wars on nouns and ideas has them my wife was right in the end yeah you're an asshole <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> true but uh, she was also right that it's great that we ban some chemical weapons, and it's great when we add more to the list. But if we're asking why they're specifically banned, I don't think there's much consistency in the reasoning. And honestly, we don't even really bother to enforce the ban, so how much do we actually care? We care enough to fire some missiles at an evacuated airbase so the media and White House can jerk each other off talking about the humanitarian reasons they have for dropping more ordnance on an already totally devastated country. If chemical weapons were really evil, Assad would be at the Hague right now when we bring back death by hanging. Damn. I can't disagree with you on that. I yeah. Mean, I mean, okay, okay, okay. Those were first yeah. draft thoughts, and even as I was saying them, I was thinking of ways I could undercut them. So, you know, take it with a huge grain of salt, because I may have conflated things like depersonalization with imprecision, but I do feel like I'm onto something. I can appreciate why a government wants to avoid putting troops in harm's way. I mean, that's just a very natural approach to this. But I agree that that the depersonalization of the military is dangerous and a slippery slope. What's to stop the US from developing real-life Terminators controlled by some kid who thinks he's playing Xbox? Which brings us to our final question. Are chemical weapons inherently evil? So what do you think? Are they evil after all this, Brian? I can say that I don't like anything that's designed for mass death. <laughs> that's a pretty... <laughs> oh, what a ballsy position to take, Brian. <laughs> oh, it's a real tough one, I know. Yeah. But I also recognize that some of these things can actually produce a stabilizing effect in international affairs. For example, once the Soviet Union got the nuclear bomb in 1949, 
This balanced the American one, and the likelihood of outright war between the two superpowers decreased significantly. And yet, my main issue with chemical weapons is the ease at which hundreds, if not thousands, could be killed in an indiscriminate manner. Think of the Holocaust, Saddam's gassing of the Kurds, Assad using them against the rebels, and chemical ISIS. Are these weapons inherently evil? Maybe not. But are the people who use them evil? Hell yes. And that's why they need to be banned. Okay, uh, let me flip that around. If I buy a can of pesticide that happens to be the same chemical used in the Holocaust, am I somehow a participant in the evil? Yes. <laughs> Bold stance. And what about the contradictory applications of Auber's process? Ammonia makes fertilizers and explosives, so is ammonia inherently evil? If you combine the pesticides that were originally designed as weapons with Auber's synthetic fertilizer, genetic research, and careful water management, you get unprecedented increases in agricultural productivity and food security for billions of people, what we call the Green Revolution. So are chemical weapons inherently evil? No. Are they inherently good? Well, definitely not. They're what we make of them. And let me, for a second here, drop the argumentative asshole facade, just for a moment. Uh, to say, it's so hard for you. I know. Man. But, you know, I just want to say that I totally understand why chemical weapons were banned in the aftermath of the First World War, because, again, they seemed intuitively unfair in trench warfare. They seemed indiscriminate at a time when war seemed more personal. And if I was playing God's advocate, which I think is the opposite of devil's happy, I don't know. Is the Pope God's lawyer? I don't know. Anyway, I would have started by flipping the question, and instead of asking, why are chemical weapons banned, I'd ask, why shouldn't chemical weapons be banned? We said that they aren't very effective or decisive, and you mentioned that there's always a threat that they'll either be used against civilian populations or by terrorists, so why do we even have them? Why does anybody have them? I think it's actually important that they're banned just for the sake of saying that some things are off-limits, even in war. In fact, they're kind of a crude litmus test, because if someone does use them, they're either stupid or they're crazy, and at some point, that's a distinction without a difference. Maybe Obama shouldn't have ignored that bright red line. In fact, maybe it should have raised some more red flags. Next, we'll discuss ammonia's unintended consequences. But first, another word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Synthetic Fertilizer. Got that freaking on video. Dude. It's the bomb. The Auber Bosch process makes the synthetic fertilizer that keeps our global system of food production running. At present, the process is used to make more than 450 million tons of fertilizer a year. Oh, first, holy shit, that's a lot of synthetic shit. Yup. Second, that may sound like a great thing, and of course, in many ways, it absolutely is. But as we've said, technologies have unintended consequences, and synthetic fertilizers have plenty. Since we spent the last segment questioning whether chemical weapons are intrinsically evil, let's turn our attention to fertilizer, which seems totally benign, and ask... Is it inherently good? Well, there's more than a few occasions where fertilizer has been weaponized. Remember, it shares the same chemical basis as explosives. We mentioned the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 when Timothy McVeigh used a moving truck packed with fertilizer. And our last ad featured a clip from an explosion from a fertilizer plant in West Texas. Something so commonplace becomes a weapon of mass destruction. But fertilizer also has less dramatic, but possibly more insidious consequences. The Auber process has clearly disrupted the natural nitrogen cycle, and that has serious implications. Let's start with that figure I mentioned, 450 million tons of fertilizer a year. That seems totally abstract, right? But 
It's roughly the combined weight of two skyscrapers. Wait, and e- wait, wait. That's the analogy you choose? Skyscrapers? They're huge and they're heavy, okay? <laughs> a skyscraper apparently weighs 225 million tons. 225,000 tons? I looked it up. Wait, Brian, that would be 200 skyscrapers. Okay, fair enough. I'm not very good at math. Apparently not. But even though the Auber process is more efficient than the arc or cyanamide methods, it consumes about 2% of the total electricity that humans use every year. Okay, that is insane. It's the same amount of energy that all of Mexico uses in a year. Also, much of that energy is generated by burning natural gas, which isn't carbon neutral. So the Auber process is a serious contributor to the greenhouse effect. I was reading a chemical engineering journal that said that scientists in Japan have been actually testing new catalysts that might let them run the process at a lower temperature and under less pressure, which would really reduce the process's energy costs. They estimated that China alone could see up to a 6% drop in its energy consumption which is huge because you can imagine how much energy China uses. Anyway, it's safe to say that the Auber-Bosch process has contributed to climate change. And that's not synthetic fertilizer's only environmental consequence. Three and a half billion more people? Think of the collective footprint. Also, about half of the fertilizer that farmers apply to their fields ends up running off into rivers. These fertilizers then nourish huge algae blooms that choke waterways and turn them a dark, cloudy green color, which prevents sunlight from reaching the water's depths. And that means that a lot of marine life ends up dying. See, now we're speaking my language. That problem, which is called eutrophication, also removes dissolved oxygen from the water and leads to a condition called hypoxia or lack of oxygen. This creates dead zones that are now often seen at the mouths of large rivers. To be fair, it's not only synthetic fertilizers. Sewage and products that contain phosphates like laundry detergents are also major contributors, but excess nitrogen is one of the biggest contributors as well. Here in the US, about 60% of the country drains into the Gulf of Mexico, mostly by way of the Mississippi River. So a huge amount of these excess washed away fertilizers end up in the Gulf. This has created a huge dead zone near the mouth of the Mississippi that varies in scale, but is typically somewhere between the size of Connecticut and New Jersey. So think about that next time you're driving up the turnpike. Oh, and fertilizer also contributes to acid rain. Right, which was a huge problem in the 80s, although much of it is atmospheric deposition because of exhaust. That's another issue. You're going too deep for us. So (laughs) in just the last hundred years, we may have forever altered the chemical composition of our air and water. It's even changed the composition of our own bodies. About half the nitrogen in your body right now went through the Auber-Bosch process. So for all the hungry mouths it's helped to feed, the Auber process has a troubling environmental legacy. It's a trade-off, mostly a good one, at least for now, but how sustainable is it? Once again, technologies aren't inherently good or evil, they're only what we make of them. We decide how they're used and what they mean. They reflect moral choices that we make, and those tell a story about who we are and what we value. So did Auber help us escape the Malthusian trap, or did he just postpone it? What are the legacies of Auber and his process? It's a paradox. Let us know what you think at Real Footnotes on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, normally at the end of every show, we take a minute or two to tell something to go fuck itself. But lately, Brian and I have been engaged in this debate about profanity on the show. And we're questioning whether we should scale it back a bit. I mean, we're really earning that explicit rating. So this week, as an alternative, I'm going to propose something new. Instead of saying, telling something to go fuck itself, I think we should take a page out of uh, BoJack Horseman and say... Suck a dick, dumb shits. <laughs> I guess that that falls within the. the it's the in the spirit of, of go fuck yourself. It, it, it certainly is. I, I like that, but go fuck yourself is kind of our thing. So okay. we're sticking to it. 
if, if we do have to address the profanity issue, uh, we very well may put censored or edited versions on our website. All right, well, let's get to it. What is the go fuck yourself for this week? Okay, this one comes from two friends of mine who took objection to a certain type of person. So when you want to like change a song, I mean like you have to be respectful towards the song. Almost definitely. And especially towards the people who are listening to it. You don't know what they're feeling at that moment. That's what you're you gotta thinking about. You got to think about it. You got to think about everybody in the room. You never know. DJ etiquette, you don't want to pull them out of the womb too early and have them just feel like no, they're the worst. they're being the worst. they're being reborn. So basically, when you're changing songs, you just have to you have you have to too slow slowly fade gradiently out. like fade out you gotta Fragile. fade out change like up like a DJ like a human uh, being absolutely and change show it up. your humanity you know what bad DJs everywhere go, go fuck, fuck yourselves yourself. yeah I I gotta say that they gotta they have a good point here fucking channel surfers of all kinds because that's what it is especially in the car yeah especially in the car I've been on road trips before where someone's listening to Pink Floyd and just when like the solo of Comfortably Numb comes in then they listen to Pink and it's like no that's the best part of the song <laughs> so I'm with them on that that's a good one alright thanks for listening and a special thanks to Thomas Hager we didn't speak to him but his book was great The Alchemy of the Air it's available from Broadway books a special thanks to Anna who played Clara for us and to Mike and Andy for their great go fuck yourselves and their contributions to the greatest inventions. Thanks to everyone who gave us suggestions on Facebook and remember to check out our website realfootnotes.com and follow us on social media at realfootnotes. Rate and review us on iTunes and listen to our mini episodes where we read your reviews and address your comments about past episodes but also announce our upcoming topic. And we'll see you next time in the margins. <laughs>